And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge, the Aaron O'Toole exit interview. That's coming right up. And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. The uh, Monday show, the Monday feature interview show. It's an Aaron O'Toole day. We've got the uh, former Conservative Party leader who's wrapping up his final time in the House of Commons, having chosen to leave uh, politics and enter uh, the private sector. So we'll talk to Aaron O'Toole about that experience, and that will be in just the next few minutes' time. Uh, A couple of things of note. This is the uh, final Monday episode of The Bridge for a little while. We're taking our uh, summer break starting next week. And just to keep in mind what that means, each Monday there will be an encore edition of some of the best of The Bridge from the past year. Uh, A couple of times, once in July and once in August, we will have new episodes of Good Talk with Chantal and Bruce. So we'll be keeping, we'll touch base with the two of them a couple of times over the summer. But uh, we're looking forward, everyone's looking forward to, to a, a summer break of some sorts. It's been a great year for the bridge, and thanks to you for making it a great year. Um, we have far exceeded the numbers we were expecting in terms of doing this podcast. Um, we're very, very happy, uh, but we are looking forward to a break. But not until we get through five episodes this week, and we're looking forward to all of them starting with today's episode. Uh, with Aaron O'Toole. But before I get there, um, somebody asked me the other day, I'm over here in Scotland for a little while, heading back uh, next week, actually, because I've done a lot of work on uh, the new book that Mark Bulgich and I are uh, hoping to unveil this fall, thanks to uh, the publisher, Simon & Schuster. So I'll be back uh, for final editing on that. Um, But somebody asked me the other day, What's the difference between the Conservative Party of the United Kingdom and the Republican Party in the United States? And they asked that question because both parties have had similar leaders over the last little while. Boris Johnson here in the UK, Donald Trump in the United States. So the question was, What's the difference between the two parties? And I said, well, you know, obviously there are a lot of different policy issues. That's normal. But I said, when it comes to leadership, they're actually pretty pretty, pretty different in terms of how they deal with their leaders. Both Johnson and Trump are proven liars. Right, Johnson was caught out lying on a lot of different things in terms uh, of his handling of the COVID situation and his private actions during COVID. Trump has been caught out lying on, well, (laughs) you name it. He's been caught out lying on it. But here's the difference. In the UK, lying, especially lying in Parliament, is unacceptable. You can't get away with that. And Johnson didn't. They tossed him as uh, party leader, 
It was a kind of a little drawn-out battle, but there was no doubt which way it was heading. And now they've tossed him out right out of the House of Commons. He's had to vacate his seat, and there'll be a by-election in it. So that's one way of handling leaders who lie. The other way of handling leaders who lie is like the Republicans. Whoa, lying? You're kidding. Did he really? Well, I don't know. I don't think he lied. He didn't lie. If I say he lied, he's going to come after me, and all his supporters will come after me. So I'm not going to say he's lying. I'm not going to say he should resign. I'm not going to say he shouldn't run for the nomination of the party for the next go-round. No, 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 no. In fact, if I'm going to say anything, I'm going to say I'll pardon him. He should be pardoned for lying. And, you know, breaking the Espionage Act if the uh, special prosecutor's charges uh, ring true. So there's your difference. Two proven liars, one given the hook, the other, oh, no, 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 no. What are you talking about? We can't give him the hook. There's your difference. You can decide which one you think is more appropriate. All right. Aaron O'Toole, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada through one election. They've had kind of had a kind of routine the last couple of, you know, one and done. You get one chance to win. If you can't win, you're you're gone. And while both Andrew Shear and Aaron O'Toole won in number of votes, they lost a number of seats to Justin Trudeau. And they both got tossed. Or as Aaron O'Toole says in a phrase that uh, he uses, he was shown the door by his own party. So how does he feel as he leaves, accepting a job now in the private sector? How does he feel about the process, and not just his experience within his party, but his experience as a politician who came in wanting to change things? How does he feel as he's leaving? That's kind of the basis of the interview we're going to do. It's kind of an Aaron O'Toole unplugged interview. And there's some interesting moments in it, and we'll uh, talk about those after the interview. So, you know what I like to do with a feature interview? I don't like to interrupt it in the middle. So we'll we'll move the message uh, for the day um, to right now, and when we come back right after it, we'll start our interview with uh, with Aaron O'Toole. So we'll be back right after this. And you're back. Thanks for uh, being here with us on The Bridge for this Monday, an opening of a new week. You're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. And you're listening today to hear the exit interview with Aaron O'Toole, the outgoing leader uh, well, it's been a while now, almost a year, um, since Aaron O'Toole was shown the door, as he says, uh, by his own party as leader of that party. He's been sitting as a just a regular MP for the last year, but he's leaving now to uh, enjoy a new job in the private sector. He'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. 
But here's, uh, here's my discussion with Aaron O'Toole. Hope you enjoy it. There's some interesting things in it. So have a listen. Aaron O'Toole. Let me start by asking you, you know, when you arrived in 2012 on Parliament Hill, the feelings you had coming in, uh, compare them to the feelings you have going out in general ways. We'll get into some of this in specific. But generally, what you were thinking when you came in compared with what you're thinking as you go out. Well, that was a special day for me, Peter, because I was a by-election winner led in by Prime Minister Stephen Harper and the late Jim Flaherty, who was a bit of a political mentor. My father was in the gallery. My father had been a colleague of Jim Flaherty's at Queen's Park, uh, a a friend, and my one-year-old son uh, and our daughter, Molly, were in the audience. So for me, I remember that more than anything. But I will say this compared to the speech I gave last week. Uh, I posted that video on my Facebook page uh, of me walking into the house. I probably at that time would have gotten three likes, mainly from my family and a few friends. And and Facebook was just really about broadcasting positive things like that uh, and not much two-way communication. Uh, Today, I don't even look at what's posted after my (laughs) speech because I want to keep my mental health in check. And so that would sort of underscore the big, big changes in the time. I think Steve Harper had just really gone on a lot of those platforms. Uh, I, I went in the last sitting day of 2012. So really my start was in 2013. And, and by the time we finished in 2015, Harper was trying to use YouTube, doing something called 24 seven, and it was widely mocked at the time, but people weren't sure how to adapt to social media. And my message now comparing to leaving a decade later is we are now conforming too much to social media. And that was part of the message I tried to send. I want to get into that in a minute, uh, but, but let me just dwell on this, this business about what was going through your mind when you came in, because a lot of MPs I talked to over time, over the last, you know, 20, 30 years, um, you know, as they arrived on Parliament Hill, they had great expectations of what the job could be, what it could mean, how they could make a difference, how they can, you know, change lives for the better as a result of their their moment in politics. And then they, when they, by the time they left, they were disappointed that, you know, they, that it hadn't lived up to what they thought it could live up to. Does any of that run in with you at this point? Absolutely not. Uh, it was an incredible privilege. It, you know, I'm not 100% gone, but I won't be back in the house. Um, and I used that privilege and that platform I had from day one. And so, you know, there's a great song I love by a band called Talk Talk, Life's What You Make It. it it's like that on the Hill. If you want to get swept along with the current and get frustrated and say, oh, I should have been promoted into this or I, I didn't get my bill passed, you can dwell on the negatives. But I haven't been leader for over a year, Peter. And every day I open the globe, there's an issue that I've talked about. The Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank, Christian Freeland uh, just pulled out of it a few days ago. Uh, I pulled out my old letter that I sent to Justin Trudeau in March of 2021. I've been advocating on that issue since I was foreign affairs critic. And so sometimes that's a democracy. The opposition will have to point, prod, and uh, applaud the, the odd time the government to make the right decision, but that's how democracy works. So I'm leaving with mental health being 
talked about a lot more than when I first got here and talked about it in the context of veterans. Uh, you know, in reconciliation with, with Indigenous peoples is something I've talked about, uh, concerns with China. So I think I've made a real difference. I didn't get the final job I was running for, certainly, and there's some disappointment. But I used every moment, uh, every ounce of fiber while I was in the arena to go to the Teddy Roosevelt, uh, uh, daring valiantly, as he said in that great speech. And sometimes I felt short, but the critics who are not in the arena, um, it's easy to be a critic. It's, it's tough to be in there. So I think politicians that leave embittered haven't taken full advantage of the privilege they had. So tough to be in there, but still, as far as you're concerned, an honorable profession. 100%. And I leave with tremendous friendships and respect for the people still there. I, I was tough with politics and our polarized time in my speech, but I left with the message I had faith in everybody in that room and that it was an honor to serve with them. That was the last two lines of my speech. So while I'm hoping some of them listened on all sides, um, I do think all of them are there for the right reasons, thinking that they're going to get Canada to a better place in the future. We just all have different paths on that same journey. And the lovely notes I've, I've received from uh, or comments from you know, ministers in the government who, uh, who don't need to take the time to send that. So there's more. It's not as toxic as sometimes it might seem, Peter. But I do think over time, if we if we don't recognize what social media is doing to the debate to frame it, um, it, it could continue to become more polarized in the future. Okay, try and um, square that for me, That what you just said. It's not as toxic as we sometimes think, yet at the same time you've talked and others have talked about the polarized state of, uh, of politics in general and Canadian politics in particular. I've talked about the polarized state um, and how it's really diminishing debate more than anything else. Um, I, I wouldn't say there's as much animus between the principal players and the people and people might think there is. I still remember when we were in government after the horrific attack on, on Parliament Hill and the killing of Nathan Cirillo and we were all locked in various rooms and um, I remember Christopher Freeland being swept into our caucus and taken over to the Pearson building. We were all comforting each other that night. Megan Leslie, the NDP deputy leader, was my friend from law school. And we talked about, you know, how were the mental health of folks in her caucus and in and, and, and the staff ranks, because it was really shocking on staff. Uh, we do care about each other more than people might think. But the element of performance politics that I talked about in my speech, you wouldn't know that because we're only talking to a slice of Canadians. And whether it's the left bemoaning, you know, the 1% or business or banks or whatever they, they hold up as the boogeyman or on our, our, uh, our side, um, you know, the UN or, or World Economic Forum, kind of the things we see through our channels. If we're only going to respond to what our existing followers are saying, we're not actually talking to all Canadians. And that was kind of the heart of my warning. But I would like people to see more how there is more respect and concern for one another than people think. Well, that's, a, that's interesting. I mean, you, you mentioned what we witnessed that day of the, uh, the shooting on Parliament Hill. And when MPs gathered um, back in the House of Commons, 
later, there was, you know, there was a degree of, uh, of affection for each other, hugging, outright hugging, tears. Uh, it, was mm-hmm. quite, it was quite a day, and not surprising as a result of the emotions of that day and the horrific nature of, of some of what had been uh, witnessed and, and, and many of you had been a part of, in the sense you could hear it going on all around you. But has there been anything like that in terms of the, you know, obviously there's nothing like that particular, but in terms of the camaraderie, camaraderie and the respect for each other, um, and the feelings for each other since that day. Yes, and it's hard to believe now, Peter, <laughs> where we're at. Um, but the early parts of the pandemic, uh, the House all agreed not to not to sit. I think that was a well-intentioned but uh, somewhat short-sighted decision. Um, there were a lot of people checking in on one another, you know, uh, Francois Philippe Champagne would call me back personally when I was sending notes about my constituents stuck on cruise ships. It was a tough time. And, you know, a lot of us were pushing out Justin Trudeau's messages of the day um, because of, of real concern, of uncertainty. And so it's, I've seen it even then, and I've praised uh, Francois Philippe and, and people like that publicly many times, including his leader, for taking that uh, approach in a tough time. As time went on, though, the, the politics descended and whether it was how long the CERB was paid for or the vaccine mandates, the early part of that um, coming together in a crisis dissipated. And I think that's too bad. I was at a conference on lessons learned from the pandemic this week put on by the IRPP and the Institute of Governance. And I said, if only we could harness a bit of that. When I suspended my leadership race at the beginning of the, the campaign, I quoted Robert Borden and I offered to sit in a COVID cabinet, uh, which I think was a missed opportunity for Mr. Trudeau to have everyone in the room to avoid um, any you know politics on essential questions of public health and pandemic response. So how can we marshal those those working together uh, approaches more. I've been calling for months to have an all party approach on election interference. Uh, the whole episode with Mr. Johnson, someone I have great respect for, was a wasted exercise. We, we should have come together and said, we all trust our democracy. Uh, we all need to safeguard it better. Let's, let's not make this political. Um, so, it's not as hard as it might seem at times to do that because I've seen that quite a few times, Peter, in, in my 10 years in public life. Did you try at all during that period, that I'm talking about the Johnson period, um, trying to push that message within your own caucus? Yes, yes. Um, and within the Liberal caucus. Um, you know, uh, I have great respect for Greg Fergus. I, I said to him, you know, this shouldn't be just defend the PMO <laughs> with all <laughs> with all your gusto. Let's look at look let's look at these issues, but we've seen uh, a bit too much partisanship on both sides. I think Michael Chong, who I stay in touch with quite regularly on these issues, has been uh, more balanced. But I didn't talk about election interference, Peter, because I knew as soon as I said something, I would be compared to Donald Trump and election denialism. And that's exactly what Jennifer O'Connell, uh, someone who lives not far from me and someone I've tried to work occasionally on a nonpartisan basis with, they went right to the default setting. And so, um, look, 
all sides have to uh, pull up their socks a bit here. I kind of tried to have that sentiment in my speech. But on something as important as protecting our parliamentary democracy, I think this could be a time where if we came together, we'd actually help rebuild the trust of everyday Canadians in their institutions. And my goodness, we need that desperately. Do you have that conversation with the man who succeeded you? Um, I've talked about concerns on China with Pierre on many occasions. In fact, uh, you know, we're going to be talking uh, later today as well. Um, you know, I wish we focused on the terms of reference uh, on, on Mr. Johnston um, and not really the personal ties he had to, to Mr. Trudeau. But there is kind of a myopic view sometimes by people in central Canada. And I say this as probably, you know, I'm a middle-class kid from Bowmanville, but I did work on Bay Street. I became a lawyer, served in the military. I'm probably, in Bricker and Ibbotson's estimation, a member of the Laurentian establishment now. <laughs> you know, I don't have much money or anything like that, but um, I don't want to to belittle people for having success in life or being part of an institution or something. But there is a kind of a myopic view. I don't think David, who I've, I've gone out of my way to show people how extraordinary I think he is as a Canadian, he should not have accepted that assignment just because of the perception. And I sent notes to some mutual friends we have, and they almost all agreed with me. Why are you jumping in front of the truck? Now, I think in fairness, he thought he could divert the truck but this is where some people don't see, you know, um, in the case of Mr. Trudeau, the emperor's not wearing clothes and, and sometimes doesn't realize it. And it's same with the Kielbergers and the Weecher, like these things that sometimes get in the way of message control from the PMO cease to exist afterwards. <laughs> and so don't put your hand up so quickly. I also think um, the timeline he was given and the terms of reference when I saw them, I said, this is a PR exercise. And when they came into my office and acknowledged the report was already at translation, that kind of told me, oh my gosh, I was one of the central targets of, of interference. I, I didn't deserve a courtesy interview. Um, that was a real miss. And I think they realize that now. You've done a, a great job of kind of skirting the issue that I was trying to get at, which was to trying to understand um, what that relationship must be like between you and uh, Mr. Polyev, the man who succeeded you as leader, uh, especially when it comes around to the issue of your clearly strong feelings about the uh, overly partisan nature of which Canadian politics, the turn has taken. I mean, you're, you're not shy about conceding that you've been pretty partisan at, at times and, and done some things you perhaps regret uh, in, in your political life. Um, but by your own admission, we're at a point now where it's really ugly out there. And most people would agree that Mr. Polyev has, has helped that ugliness, not alone and not only conservatives. But I'm just wondering whether, do you, do you ever have the opportunity to sit down with him, just the two of you, and talk about leadership and what it needs at this time? Um, I've given my advice, um, and and he's open to it, and I appreciate that. Um, I've long told him that uh, you know some of the the issues floating around now on social media, particularly within some conservative circles, 
on the UN or Davos or things like that are destructive. And so I think he has tried to navigate that by saying, okay, we're not going to participate if, if vast groups of Canadians don't have confidence. But I've also wanted us to be sure to say, like when Stephen Harper spoke at Davos, it was to sell our energy. And he had a speech where we were an energy superpower. And if Canada's now not going to be at tables of decision around the world because of you know, the polarized nature and a lot of Canadians not having faith in those institutions, I think part of the reason why we can say, okay, we're not going to participate, that's fine. But how are we going to make up for that lost opportunity of talking to world leaders and capital markets? And, and so he knows that. And I, I do think he's going to try and bridge those issues. But in fairness, Peter, you know, each time in Canada deserves a leader with a different style and different approach. Maybe my bad luck was being the leader I was during the pandemic, where I tried to bridge the the, the importance of vaccination to the point that my wife and I um, did our vaccinations online and, and were very public. And, and Mr. Trudeau praised that at the time. And then months later, he accused me of, of supporting anti-vaxxers because I didn't think people should lose their job. I, I was trying to bridge a divide on an election that was built on division. The result is more polarization. The trucks that pulled into town is around around the time I was being shown the door were a direct result of some of the division of that election and making swaths of people feel demonized or forgotten. So there's enough, you know, I don't want to say blame. There's, there's enough criticism to spread around here. And I think Pierre is a very smart communicator, and I think he's going to to bridge that gap. But um, that will be the big challenge for him in the next election, because I do think there's a feeling for change. There's a uh, almost a fatigue in some circles with Justin Trudeau. And I've written about how I don't like to see that bubble over on some occasions. Um, but you have to marshal change in a way that makes sure all Canadians are brought along. So on environment or other issues, we can't just speak for rural Saskatchewan or rural, rural Alberta. We have to speak for the entire country. It's tough. I know that. Uh, the good thing is Pierre is one of the best communicators in the house. And I think he'll be able to do that. You know, when you, the phrase you just used a few moments ago was when you were shown the door. Um, you must have been bitter in that moment when you were shown the door. How long did it take you to get over that? Um, it was tough. That was the toughest day of my life, Peter. Um, I've spoken openly about that with some people and some veterans that, that have talked about these challenges you have in your life. The biggest challenge for me was my, my wife had just had serious surgery a few days earlier. So I returned home, um, you know, to someone who had sacrificed so much for everything I've done and was literally incapacitated at the time. And, and, um, yeah, there was lawlessness in the city that is the antithesis to me of being a, a sort of Burkean conservative. I've talked about that before. You can't let frustrations turn into law breaking. That runs the opposite of being a conservative, I believe. But you have to recognize the frustrations exist. So I wish my caucus had shown a little bit more fortitude, perhaps, to get through that tough period. But literally, there was horns, you remember it, and they were calling for my removal, calling for my head. And some people, 
you know, lost their nerve. Some people had ambition for the the next regime or the, you know, that they weren't happy with where I had placed them or what have you. Some were not happy with my climate policy or my move on banning conversion therapy. So I think it was a ton of grievances, including losing, piling on top of <laughs> a, a kind of mini insurrection or whatever you wanted to call that, uh, that state of affairs on Wellington Street. And I've spoken about how much I dislike the flags uh, about the prime minister. You know, I, I've disagreed strenuously with him, but I think that type of vitriol can lead to a desensitization that, you know, all politicians are in this thinking they're doing the right thing. And if you're mad, knock on a few more doors. Uh, don't, don't, you know, participate in kind of the decline of uh, political discourse. And so that day was a tough day. It took me several months making sure the family was moved and recovered and, and things like this. But I'm, I'm a positive person, so I focused on, you know, my mental health work, some work in the riding, proud the first SMR and commercial operation Canada project I've talked about and promoted for years is now in Darlington in my community, focused on my podcast. No, I don't have as many followers as you, Peter, but that was kind of my goal. Um, and I've supported some of the groups that I haven't had as much time to help, whether it's True Patriot Love or some of the things I was involved in before politics. And that has gotten my, my skip back. And then this great opportunity to work on geopolitical trade and risk and, and security issues for a Paris-based company, all that work I've done on my French, hey, it might pay off after politics. <laughs> and, uh, so I'm very, very optimistic about the future and I'm 50. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about the next challenge. You're just a kid, 50, my God. I know, I've got a lot of years to catch up to your number of followers. <laughs> yeah, you got a lot of years to catch up to my number of years. <laughs> um, what was the biggest lesson of leadership for you? What did you, what did you learn that you can take forward in your, your new job and, and in the rest of your life? What, what was the one thing about leadership um, that may have surprised you, but it certainly taught you something? Just how closely tied emotion is to decision-making. Uh, and, uh, you know, for lawyers, there's this great quote, I think you learn maybe from Aristotle in first year that, Law is reason devoid of passion, and uh, you come up with a good program or analysis. So I've been known as a bit of a policy wonk and a bit of a, uh, you know, ideas person, I believe. And I spent a lot of time trying to say, how can Canada make its Paris climate targets, get emissions down, while also getting our energy to market and having the least disruption on poor or middle-class Canadians who will be paying more carbon tax in their consumption uh, and are more price sensitive. We hired Navius Research, the best firm in the country. I, I talked to some of the leading uh, climate experts. We spent a lot of time and money on a program. <laughs> but at the end, I found some people just the emotion uh, uh, of being opposed to something, a price on carbon for so many years that even when I pointed to them, hey, here's John Baird's speech on pricing carbon, here's Jim Prentice's speech on pricing carbon, it became so emotional. And um, I would do Zoom calls with, with angry constituents of certain MPs and talk to my constituents. And after a 40-minute Zoom, people understood, but I couldn't do a Zoom call with 30 million people. <laughs> and uh, so that's something that I think the pandemic heightened everything as well, Peter. So the emotions were even more uh, extreme in, in, in that time. So 
I, I didn't make an emotional connection, I think, on some of these issues that I needed to do. I was trying to say, look, we can get our emissions down to here and get a pipeline built. And I thought people would say, hey, this is a smart, this guy's smart. He's got, he came up with a solution. No, it was emotion. So that's probably, I saw that as Veterans Affairs Minister and it, it took me time, you know, often getting yelled at from people and sort of taking their frustration before I could come up with a plan. So I should have learned that lesson earlier in my political career that the most decisions are emotionally based, but uh, I certainly learned it near the end. <laughs> um, here's my last question. Well, part of uh, part of the role of being a party leader is to encourage others to run, right? You you're looking, you're always looking for potential candidates for for ridings you want to win or you need to win if you're going to assume power, and it becomes. Um, it's not easy to convince people to give up the life they have to run for politics and everything that can mean. And it has always meant in terms of the, the challenges and the difficulties, even more so today with the, uh, the lack of respect some people have for uh, the political life and for politicians in general. Uh, when you think back to those, those days where you were trying to convince people to run uh, for Parliament, how hard was that in you know in in today's world? Because it is different, partly because of the things you mentioned in your speech, and about the impact of social media. Talk to me about how how difficult that was to convince people to run. Wow, it, it must have been like you were eavesdropping on conversations I was having with my team because I've talked about that being one of my biggest challenges as a leader. We identified about twenty target candidates for us, you know, star candidates, or I, I was really trying to plan a future cabinet and, and to bring in some expertise. And not only I spent a lot of time talking to some of these people, a lot of my key, my campaign chair, my director of fundraising people in the business community and non-for-profit community. And out of these 20 amazing people that we had significant conversations with, 18 to 20, two ran. And I want to give them shouts out, Vincent Duhamel in Quebec and Susan MacArthur in Ontario, both incredibly experienced. Vincent's kind of like the French-Canadian Mark Carney's worked for Goldman's, worked around the world, an amazing guy, ran Fiera Capital. He, by the time he ran, we gave him a seat in the townships. So that was tough to, to win, but Brian Mulrooney came out and supported him because Vincent was so good. And Susan MacArthur is an incredible leader. The others, almost all of them, Peter, pointed to social media as the reason. And I remember one who is this amazing woman, uh, works at an at a iconic Canadian company, and she said to me, my husband and I were having a glass of wine and we looked through social media and we couldn't see our children seeing their mom being subjected to some of that. And um, I'll never forget that. And what could I say to them? I couldn't say, oh, that's going to change. Um, that's temporary or, oh, that won't happen to you. They knew I wanted their expertise and potentially future cabinets. They knew they'd be scrutinized and um, or if they, you know, if they had success and what type of car they drove or, you know, would they be attacked for uh, having worked for a bank or something like this. Um, that is something we have to work on. And it's also why going back to your first question, Peter, I don't regret a moment of my time in Parliament. And I think even though I didn't get to move the dial forwards directly, 
on the SMR in Darlington. Mr. Trudeau adopted the policy I had in my platform and did it. And so I could say, hey, the opposition influenced. You know my passion for the Arctic, Arctic sovereignty. I've been talking about it for years. It's now very hot, literally, with climate change. And so I think politicians like myself, John McKay, and some others have moved the conversation there. And Anita and Ant, um, and you know, signed the North Morning System extension. It's going to be run by an Inuit-led business. There's a great story there, and I like to think, hey, our work over many years made a difference. So to all those amazing men and women that want to potentially run, uh, come and help elevate the debate would be my would be my advice. But make sure you pack your armor and uh, have it on occasionally because it is a it is a tough business, Peter. But that's why I respect all people that get into it. Um, you did mention that you've heard from a lot of fellow MPs from different parts of the House uh, since your, your speech. Are, are they all sort of, you know, circling around that argument about the impact that social media has had and how they, how they, the, even they have had, the temptation has affected them as well to get into it, to get involved, to be focused on, on their followers and their followers' followers. Uh, and the number of likes they can get and all that way. I mean, what are they saying to you um, as you, as you leave the scene after that speech? That's exactly what they're focusing it on. Um, you know, some you know, in other parties have said to me that needed to be said. And um, they realized that, um, you know, when why I quoted Borden and saying, you know, the great national purpose and, and, Putting the country first has to be before your own political ambition or just the ambitions of your party. Uh, it is easy to think that if I don't um, do this and support this, I won't have success. And so it is sometimes hard to swim a little bit against the current, unless we're all swimming in the same direction. We don't have to have a synchronized swimming routine. We can have our different opinions. But I think if we all try and improve debate, you know, more debate in the House, um, um, you know, longer answers to questions, uh, more sitting time in the House. You know, in, the, in the UK, I like the benches. People should go in and have to get their seat for a big debate, not sit there and write Christmas cards. Um, I think we have to take the debate in the House much more respectively, whittle down the number of committees to a handful, and say, you have to be in the debate and let the Speaker recognize who speaks um, by someone who knows their stuff rather than someone who's going to read a prepared text. And so I think there's a lot of things we can do within a wonderful system. Uh, we both like to talk a bit of Churchill, you know, we have the worst system of them all, except all the others that have been tried or whatever he said. Right. Let's recognize there's some challenges uh, to, the, to the way it's structured, but even looking at the UK, they have more time for answers. They, they do things differently. Um, they generally have MPs that build up subject matter expertise in areas without an official assignment of being a chair or something. Let's really encourage that more. And I think that would heighten the debate. Aaron O'Toole, uh, thanks for doing this. I, I know you. everybody has wanted a piece of you in the last few days as, as you prepare to leave uh, Parliament Hill. Uh, in fact, a number of us have, have said it's probably the best orchestrated exit anybody can remember between the experts, exit speeches, exit interviews, exit appearances. 
Uh, it's been quite something, but your message has uh, come across loud and clear. Appreciate the time. I appreciate the friendship. You've always been uh, good to me and in uh, uh, accepting the opportunity to do interviews over the over the years. Appreciate it. I'll miss that. But I do wish you lots of luck in your uh, in your new venture. Well, listen, I want to thank you, your coverage of our veterans and our, our Canadian story, Peter. Uh, I remember with my son watching the 100th of, of Bimmy Ridge, and you had some students with Sam Sharp t-shirts from Uxbridge, that World War One MP that I've talked a lot about on Mental Health Files. Uh, you've really helped tell the Canadian story, so it's been a real pleasure. And this exit, part of it was planned. I guess part I have to thank Beijing for uh, a little bit more attention on me. So maybe they helped my exit in more than one way, Peter. <laughs> well, I'm sure I'm sure they'll grab that and run with it if they can. Uh, thanks again, and uh, take care. Look forward to speaking again. Bye-bye. Aaron O'Toole, um, the last interview uh, as a Conservative Member of Parliament that he'll be giving to uh, the bridge, uh, but just one of many interviews he's given over the, uh, the last week. As I said, he's been on the sort of exit interview tour, he had a big exit speech in the House of Commons last week uh, where he really went at the subject of the impact social media has had on on the political dialogue in the country and the polarization that it's led to in different parts of, of politics and, and the country at large. Um, so I appreciate uh, uh, Aaron O'Toole's time and uh, hope you uh, hope you did as well. I mean, there are a number of themes there that he's touching on in all these interviews. Um He's touching on the social media theme, obviously. He's touching on, and you can tell in in the different um, uh, ways he talks about various issues, that he'd like to see his party closer, um, well, so closer to a moderate approach uh, to a number of issues, rather than the uh, extreme approach that some say um, the new leader is pushing for. Uh, so they. Uh, it's interesting that he's laying that out there. I found it. I, I found that his relationship with uh, Pierre Polyev, obviously, it's not great. Polyev, in many ways, led the uh, led the charge to uh, to push um, Aaron O'Toole out of office and create the vacuum that eventually created his own leadership bid and his success as uh, as being the new leader of the Conservative Party. Um, but he was very careful on how he described that relationships as they do talk and that he does make his case on, 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 on certain things. But I'll tell you of all the things he said, the, the thing I found most interesting, because I've often thought about this and talked to other leaders of other parties about the challenge of recruiting candidates to run an election uh, has just got harder and harder and harder in the 50 years that I've been covering politics in Canada. Uh, to the point where, you know, I, to me it was quite an admission. He, 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 you know, Aaron O'Toole took some, you know, he almost sounded proud of the fact that they got two of the 20 candidates they were targeting to run. To me that sounded like, wow, two out of 20, that's the best uh, we can do and we can be happy with that. I mean, that says something. I don't think that says anything about the Conservative Party or Aaron O'Toole. It says something about the state of politics in Canada. The example he used of the uh, the potential candidate, the, the the woman who sat with her husband and went through social media and said, "We don't need this. We don't need our kids 
to, to, to have this in their lives. And they just said, I'm out of here. I, I'm not going to do it. Now, a lot of good people want to run for politics, whether it's federal, provincial, municipal, school board, you name it. Um, but it's getting harder and harder to convince them that it's worth it. That it's worth what they're going to have to go through to make the changes that they want to see happen. Uh, and that's a sad commentary on the state of um, politics in Canada. So I, uh, I appreciate that Aaron O'Toole told us that story. And for me, I think that's going to be one of the ones that <clears throat> will live with me for, for quite some time because it is exactly what's happened. You know, if you can't get the candidates you really want, that you circled for, you know, potential major roles within your party, that means you're going to have to, in most cases, settle and uh, be, be satisfied with something less. And that's too bad. All right. Um, enough for today. Tomorrow, um, Brian Stewart will be by for his uh, final uh, Ukraine commentary as we head into the summer break. Interesting things happening there with the Ukraine offensive and uh, trying to figure out exactly how it's going. Um, Wednesday is uh, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. Now, Bruce is away this week. Uh, Rob Russo, um, and my uh, good friend from Ottawa, will be sitting in for, uh, for Bruce on uh, Wednesday. Thursday is the final your turn for the week. So if you have some thoughts on anything, especially you know what Aaron O'Toole just talked about, uh, let's hear from you. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. If you didn't hear the random rancher last week on bike lanes, uh, you might want to listen to it. Uh, we've had a fair number of comments, uh, both pro and con, uh, which is uh, not unusual, on the uh, on the, the rancher's take on bike lanes. Um, and uh, Friday, of course, is the final good talk of the uh, pre-summer season. So Chantel and Bruce will both be here for that. That's it for now. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours. Mm-hmm.